For the first time in our 20-year history, Fund for Teachers will host a national convening of educators. It's called Planet for the Planet, an environmental summit, and it's on Saturday, April the 10th. This free virtual event, co-hosted by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, will bring together leading innovators from America's preeminent environmental organizations to help teachers and their students develop action plans to implement in their school communities. The summit brought to mind a 2017 Fund for Teachers Fellow who was also an environmental innovator, Aaron Appleton. In addition to researching the connection between an Indonesian rainforest and the carbon marketplace with the Fund for Teachers grant, he has also researched the carbon sequestration capacity of meadows in the Sierra Nevada mountains with a grant from Earthwatch Institute, as well as cougars of Yellowstone National Park with a grant from Ecology Project International. Aaron is now leveraging his experiences teaching and researching to shift from environmental innovator to educational incubator by developing a new virtual reality platform to morph science education away from a transactional process to a constructive one. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. I last spoke with Aaron after his fellowship deep in the jungles of Indonesia. Afterwards, he founded the School of Wildlife Conservation at African Leadership University, dubbed the University of the Future by CNN and one of the 50 most innovative organizations in the world by Fast Company. For this episode, I caught up with Aaron in London, where he is pursuing a master's degree in technology, innovation, and education from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Aaron is also an EdTech founder in the Harvard Innovation Lab, incubating a startup called Limehouse. And he already holds a master's degree in earth science education from City University of New York, Brooklyn College. While we had an interesting discussion on his life as a teacher's kid and an ethnomusicology major, his startup, and his thoughts on what science education will look like post-pandemic, Aaron had a few questions of his own about how things are going at Fund for Teachers. I like to start these conversations with the simple question of how you became a teacher. Well, that's a, that's a really great question because it was a career path I never thought I would go down. It, it's funny because everybody in my family are educators. My dad taught physics at, in high school for 40 years before retiring. My mom taught a course called business education, which I don't think it's it's no longer taught in our high school, but it's more about touch typing and all these things. And even my sister, uh, she's currently a teacher as well. So I, I always thought I was a bit of the black sheep in the family and I was going to go off and do creative endeavors, like uh, try and be a musician or something like that. Um, <laughs> so, I, I had actually gone to undergrad for a very peculiar degree called ethnomusicology, basically the anthropology of music, uh, so studying music within its cultural context. So I did a number of projects uh, related to ethnomusicology in Central America, like Belize and Guatemala, and then in Eastern Africa, like in Uganda, Rwanda, uh, South Sudan, and Somalia. And yeah, it was really fun. I was doing that for a number of years, but on one of the projects I was doing, I was collaborating with uh, the Somaliland Ministry of Tourism. And I've met this lady who was just such an inspiration named Dr. Sada Mire. So she was Somalia's first and only archeologist, but just her passion and her love for 
uh, science just really inspired me. And it kind of just set me off on this whole path of just exploring both the social and the natural sciences and just going down any and every rabbit hole I could. And I fell in love with that and eventually ended up uh, while living in East Africa, uh, taking a number of science courses online, um, just enough so that uh, I was able to basically have a minor equivalent uh, of an undergraduate degree in the earth sciences. And so that allowed me to uh, basically pursue the uh, New York City Teaching Fellows Program, which is, is how I eventually met you, through my work at a school there called Quest to Learn, uh, which is the world's first game-based learning school. Um, so I did that uh, yeah, for a number of years, just purely was led to that out of a, a deep love for science and trying to communicate that to other students. Were you allowed to sit at the family table at holidays again since you were supporting <laughs> the, the family business? Yeah, finally, finally. I was no longer the black sheep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then from there, you applied for a very unique fellowship. I remember reading it when it came across our desk. Would, would you just explain with whom you collaborated and, and what you did? Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of aligned with my, my love for science, I had found this organization there founded in the UK, but they're operating in Indonesia and a number of other countries, but they're called Operation Wallacea. Um, so I found a really cool summer program with them that allowed me to go to one of these super remote islands. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of it right now. It, it wasn't Sulawesi, was it? I'm trying to think. Oh, it was, it was, yeah, yeah. But I remember just, just to get there. Um, I had to go to like the Kuala Lumpur airport and then to another island and then to another airport and then took this, this ride deep, deep into the jungle just to get to kind of the base camp before hiking even further in. Um, so it was quite the experience. Um, and I was working there with an international group of field biologists and we we're completing surveys together that focused on calculating carbon biomass in the forest on this particular island um, with the end goal of using that data for carbon trading markets. So it could help lead to the sustainability of that particular forest. So people would be incentivized to uh, keep it in really good shape, not cut down the trees, not deforest it because it had economic value that they could uh, benefit from through these carbon trading markets. Can you talk a little bit about the things that you did there? Yeah, yeah. So um, that's quite the experience. It was, it was pretty funny um, how I thought I would be totally prepared for it. But <laughs> I, I had previously, um, you know, lived in Africa for a number of years and thought I knew like how to dress appropriately for like these types of expeditions. But the funny thing is um, I was going on this one for teachers trip to Indonesia right between switching jobs, between New York and then moving to the island of Mauritius, which is in the Indian Ocean, um, to start a new job at African Leadership University as a learning experience designer. So I had to travel with basically every single one of my earthly possessions <laughs> deep into the jungle of Indonesia. It was, it was quite the sight to see. Um, but <laughs> when I arrived there, I had just had no idea that it would be so incredibly humid. And I was dressed just 
<laughs> like it was very unprepared New Yorker, just with like blue jeans, t-shirt, <laughs> and leather shoes, H hiking through like uh, probably like half deep mud um, on about like three, four hour long hikes deep into the jungle to get to uh, the places where we were um, measuring these trees and collecting this data. Fortunately, like halfway through the trip, we ended up coming back to the base camp where I kept my backpack. So I just like threw away all that stuff. I was able to get like a pair of rubber boots and like a swimsuit and then I was good to go for the rest, <laughs> rest of the time. Yeah, we would do all sorts of different types of data collection. I remember one of them was we were, we were doing these one types of mathematical calculations where you would have to measure the circumference of a particular tree um, and then you could calculate based on that and the type of tree it was, how much carbon it's most likely contained. And then we set up like these quadrants also to basically sample particular sections of the forest that we could then extrapolate out like, all right, this much carbon is contained like within this one part of the quadrant. So we can estimate that there's like this much carbon within the total forest here. So we do stuff like that. Um, we would uh, like do some animal population counts as well. We had a herpetologist on the crew, so we would... <laughs> This, this is pretty fun. We'd go out at night and capture snakes <laughs> and then collect data on them. And then some very, very large uh, frogs that we found there as well. Then you went from there with all of your earthly possessions and one less New York City outfit to Mauritius. Yes. And tell me how what you learned transferred to your new school. Um, from, from the Fund for Teachers Fellowship? Yeah. Did you, were you able to take some of that, that the experiences and the insights? Absolutely, yeah, a lot of it. Um, because my position there was was I was one of the founding team members for the school's brand new School of Wildlife Conservation, and we took kind of a unique approach to the content that we were teaching, where we focused on the intersection of business and conservation. So yeah, so much of what I did on on that fellowship was directly applicable to that particular job. We talked a lot about carbon markets in Africa and how you can use like these red plus schemes and other uh, ways to approach forest conservation in these different areas. Um, so I uh, basically took some of what I had learned there and was able to implement it directly into our curriculum that we were teaching at ALU. And you were there for three years? Yeah, for three years. And now? I'm in uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Uh, and it's a particular program within that called Technology, Innovation, and Education. How did you decide to take that route? Well, um, so one of my greatest interests in education is design for science education. Um, I really enjoyed, um, you know, at Quest to Learn in New York with our unique focus on, on uh, game-based learning learning some of the principles of game design and incorporating that into our pedagogical approach, as well as at ALU, we were very influenced by the human-centered design process that companies like IDEO or Google or um, Stanford University's D-School use, um, and seeing how that can be you know, such a powerful process to create compelling learning experiences. Um, so I just learned that on the job, but I didn't really have an academic background in it. So that's kind of what led me to Harvard, because uh, they have such great courses that focus on design for education there. Can you explain the type of things that you're pursuing and, and maybe what the end goal for you would be from that pursuit? Yeah, absolutely. So many of my courses are project-based. 
that's been quite fun um, being able to come up with different prototypes for different types of educational technologies. And then I'm also uh, working with a former colleague of mine. We, we used to work at ALU together, but he's in the business school doing an MBA program there. So we teamed up together and we are in the Harvard Innovation Lab working on incubating a venture right now, which is, it's called Limehouse. And it's basically um, a three-sided marketplace in virtual reality for education. So similar to, if you're familiar with Udemy, similar to that, but in virtual reality. Explain that to me because you're above my pay grade about five minutes ago in this description. So, <laughs> so tell me a little bit more for, uh, dumb it down a little bit for me about what that looks like, what the, like, who would the, who would be the, the users who would interface with this and, and why? Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you would have educators as uh, one of the players in the marketplace. Um, and similar to Udemy, uh, they can be independent educators or work for an institution. And if they have some sort of a curriculum that they would like to, to share with learners, uh, we would have the tools on the platform that enables them through three really simple steps to set up a space in virtual reality to be able to invite students into to uh, learn that content with them. Then the second part will be 3D artists. Since we don't expect educators to have, you know, those very difficult technical skills of making 3D assets and being able to import them in, we hope to incentivize 3D artists to create things, I don't know, like couches or rooms or like any type of 3D asset and upload that to the storefront, set whatever price they would like to be paid for it. Then educators can kind of choose from those to populate their spaces with mm -hmm. uh, whatever fits their content best. And then the third side will be the learners or the students who will then access the educators virtual institutes or those spaces or else if they like they can also you know upgrade their own avatars or add some pizzazz to <laughs> to their their look in the virtual space what made you decide to focus in on that particular aspect of education what were you seeing that was lacking i assume that you started this before the pandemic when everything went virtual what kind of was the catalyst for that yeah yeah um i mean seeing a lot of these large education marketplaces, whether it's Udemy or Coursera or edX, um, many of them take a very transmissionist approach to learning, um, where it is just basically a person passively conveying information to learners. Um, and there's been so many years of, of research that show how ineffective that particular approach is to learning. So, I wanted to try and figure out a technology where you could uh, utilize a much more active approach to learning, a constructionist approach where learners are engaged together, actively making something. Um, and through that process, they're able to learn some sort of new content and something that could also scale. So that was inherent in it needing to be a, a virtual platform. So did a lot of exploration at different technologies and arrived at, at virtual reality as one that might be able to work well for that idea. What do you see going forward as the direction of students who are going to be learning science in a virtual environment? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I see the pandemic as, as really a catalyst to innovation in the education space. Um, there's all sorts of really unique and uh, very inspiring ideas and new startups that are, are being funded uh, pretty frequently now. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the future will hold a lot of great new companies that 
just kind of fill all these different niches that basically cater to different student interests. Like I, I see big institutions like Harvard or MIT or Stanford being unbundled and different uh, unique aspects of their business model, so to speak, like whether it's the research or whether it's learning or whether it's community, those being unbundled, unbundled into individual platforms, ed tech platforms that are being created specifically to uh, like really excel at doing those things even better than those institutions as standalone products. But yeah, I really think that there'll be a mixture of VR products, of mobile products, of web-based products, just it'll keep getting better and better and hopefully move away from transmissionist-based approaches to learning. What's out there now that you could, we could suggest to our teachers and fellows, something that teachers can use now to start being more of a constructionist, constructionist education, I think is what you called it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of really cool tools out there now. One called Miro uh, that we've used quite a bit. Uh, it's web-based. You can open it right in the browser. It's pretty good for project-based learning and um, like a nice, easy platform to allow students to exhibit some of their work uh, share it with one another. Um, in terms of VR platforms, there's one, one called Verbella, uh, which is, is pretty cool. There's a lot of institutions that are starting to sign up to that and basically recreating their campuses in virtual reality. Um, Minecraft is, is one uh, that I've seen educators use quite a lot uh, in really unique and fun ways. Um, and then I'm starting to see some of these game engines that people have in the past used strictly for making video games. I'm seeing a lot of educators using those in really unique ways to engage their students. Like Unreal Engine is, is one of them. And there's one called Unity uh, that you can design really cool virtual uh, experiences for your, your learners using those tools. One of the co-founders of Quest to Learn, her name is Katie Salen. Um, she's now out in California and she started another really great uh, business called Connected Camps. And that's all about pairing students, young students with mentors in Minecraft. And they always have like some sort of learning objective that they're doing in Minecraft. So that's, that's a, a good resource I've come across recently. Where are you in five or 10 years? What, what's kind of your, your goal trajectory? Yeah, I'm, I'm loving going down this path of, of being an educational product designer. So I would love to, whatever company allows me to continue doing that <laughs> is, is one I'll be excited about. Um, so whether that might be working for a design consultancy as like an education specialist, yeah. or maybe it's to uh, work for some sort of like a biotech startup, but working on say customer facing learning uh, to teach people how to use these biology tools or even uh, maybe like another more innovative uh, university or school similar to ALU. I'd, I'd be uh, happy, happy in any of those. Your background is so fascinating. Is there any advice that you would give to teachers who want to go on a little different path, maybe not in the classroom, but still in the educational space? That's a really good question. I mean, my path, it was just very slow little micro pivots along the way. It takes, from my experience, a lot to uh, basically go from teaching to even an adjacent field within education. So yeah, just kind of testing it out, whether it's through taking courses in that particular area, if it's like design for education or, or 
policy for education are, are another area. Taking courses, talking to as many people as you can. And if there are any like opportunities where you can pursue something like that on the side uh, as you're teaching, I think that helps to minimize risk uh, while allowing you to, to get a good experience and seeing what that might be like. Anything that I've not asked you about, Aaron, that you wanted to talk about, about your, your teaching, your fellowship, what you're doing now, education in general? Yeah, not, not, not that I can think of. Um, but I'm curious to hear more from you. Um, I'd love to hear more about the podcast, how that's going and how Fun for Teachers is going. Sure. I've been here about 13 years and I'm biased, but I think Fun for Teachers is the only organization of its kind that listens to teachers and answers the call for what they need. As you know, when you wrote, did your fellowship, it's a rigorous application but the result is helping teachers formalize what their interests are and what they, what really what their students' interests are, right? So to see teachers and their creativity and what that means for different teachers, public, private, charter, pre-K through 12, rural schools, urban schools, it's fascinating to see the level of commitment. And when given the opportunity, the creativity that, that teachers employ to meet their students' needs. So when I first came into this job, I really wanted to only or learn about the stories of the Aaron Appletons who were going into Indonesia and working with Earth Watch Expedition and the Seattle Zoo to do XYZ. To me, that was like, that's what Pumper Teachers is. And over time, I've come to realize that really it's, it's the teacher in Oregon who, who teaches five grades in one room and needs to learn how to teach those students at a high level. And so it might be a conference in Eugene. It's been an interesting pivot for us during this pandemic Mm. because while we are not travel grants and while the majority of our fellows stay in North America, we have had to pivot. Our 2020 fellows delay those until 2021. And here we are at 2021. And Mm. we felt it was imperative that we continued to meet teachers' needs, especially because of the pandemic just to give teachers a a chance to be innovative and creative outside of the zoom space and b to to maybe meet some needs that were not as apparent before the pandemic in their students or in their teaching practice and we really encouraged applicants to focus on issues that our country is facing at this unique time but another pivot that it's been really exciting for our organization is to focus on on the cohort of teachers that we already have for 20 years. This is our 20th year of awarding teacher grants. So we have 9,000 fellows now, teachers, again, public, private, charter, pre-K through 12, who have become, in a sense, content experts on sometimes very niche areas, mm-hmm. like perhaps climate in Indonesia, but it could also be about social emotional learning or English as a second language, more macro subjects as well. And so learning how to really leverage all of that intellect and that experience and that insight into an engine that can serve not only those 9,000 fellows and their students, but just teachers in general. And so we've pivoted to come inward in a sense and look at these fellows and empower them with what they need right now. We're doing circles being led by fellows We had a teaching with equity and justice circle and also one on virtual learning, bringing teachers together from around the country to figure out how to work together among that group, but then in a larger platform to affect and impact issues that they are facing directly. And so we're 
going to continue that in the spring and also in the summer. We have created a mentor program to match previous fellows with more recent fellows and again, try to figure out how to increase the impact in their communities. So it's an exciting time to to take what we have done externally for 9,000 fellows with $32 million in grants and still continue to provide grants, which I'm especially proud of, but also think about how we can can use that synergy of those those 9,000 content experts and creative and innovative and dedicated teachers to create more opportunities for for their peers and for our students. So it's 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 a pretty neat time. And this spring we're doing something called Planet for the Planet. And it is our first virtual convening. And it's something that we have heard our fellows ask for over the years. And because of the the pandemic, we are creating this national virtual convening around climate change and are working with leaders in some of America's top zoos and aquariums and uh, university structures to create this conference, but also invite teachers, encourage teachers to invite their students to come as well and create action plans. So again, another really interesting offshoot of working with our fellows to leverage that greatness to see what we can do in our school communities. So it's been some micro pivots and some macro pivots. Um, Again, I'm biased, but there's no cohort or cadre of teachers who are more passionate and dedicated than our fellows. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. The last thing I'd like to ask you is, can you talk about the value of something like a fund for teachers fellowship for you or for teachers in general who are given the freedom to design something that maybe has never been done before, but is particular to their interest. Yeah, um, I'm just incredibly grateful for the experience I got through fund, the Fund for Teachers grant. Um, I believe that it was the most valuable professional ex- development experience that I've had so far. Um, it was just, yeah, such an incredible opportunity where you can just, whatever you can imagine, as being the thing you are most interested in and the thing that can contribute the most value to your career and your development as an educator. You can just crystallize those into your application. And hopefully if if you get it, you can just, yeah, learn so much. I mean, I, I am constantly reflecting on that particular experience that I had. And throughout my whole time at ALU, which immediately preceded that, I was able to take so many of those learnings and directly benefit from um, that experience in Indonesia. You have one of the most fascinating backgrounds of anyone with whom I've ever spoken at Fun for Teachers. It's really a a privilege to hear about your trajectory and I look forward to seeing where it all goes. Thank you, Carrie. That's very kind of you. We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from 9,000 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org slash blog, or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you, Fund for Teachers fellow Aaron Appleton, for speaking with us today about his personal trajectory as a teacher and his micro pivot into the educational design space. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning.